Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Arne Westad. I'm one of the directors of LSE Ideas. And it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Professor Carol Birkin here tonight uh, for her lecture on rewriting the history of the Constitution from the miraculous to the political. Um, a bit more than 220 years ago, the uh, Federal Convention in America convened in the State House, which is now known as Independence Hall in Philadelphia, to revise the Articles of Confederation. And because I think delegations from only two states were present uh, at the very beginning, uh, the members adjourned from day to day until they had a quorum of seven states. Then the discussion and the debate began, and it became clear quite quickly then that rather than amending the existing articles, the convention would draft an entirely new frame of government, a kind of government that had never been seen before. And all through the summer of 1787, these delegates debated and they redrafted the articles of this new constitution. Among the chief points that were discussed, the issues that came up, were how much power to allow to the central government, how to form an executive, and how the rights of the citizens could best be protected. These debates from 1787 have echoed through the history of the United States and still echo there today. But they've also, as we've seen in earlier lectures in this series, had a fundamental and profound significance internationally. For many countries that have found themselves in a situation where they have to form a state, where they have to form a new form of government. It is many of the debates that we saw in America in 1787 that they have been harking back to. So the echoes from the American founders, the creators of the American Constitution, are with us not just in American public debate today, but in an international debate that is still ongoing. And it's a great pleasure that we are able to concentrate on the history of the Constitution in a broad sense tonight through the lecture of Professor Birkin. Now, Carol Birkin is Professor of History at Baruch College and at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, where she, she teaches American history and women's history. Uh, she is the author and editor of a number of books, including Women of America, a History, which she edited with Mary Beth Norton, Women, War, and Revolution, a Comparative History, First Generations, Women in Colonial America. In 2002, she published The Brilliant Solution, Inventing the American Constitution, which is close to what Professor Birkin will be talking about tonight. Uh, she's also published Women in the Struggle for America's Independence in 2005, and she is now working on, I'm not sure, Carol, if that has been published, Exploring Women's Studies book. Oh. Okay, so Exploring Women's Studies, Looking Forward, Looking Back, will be out in February. She is a frequent contributor to television documentaries. Um, Professor Birkin has worked as, as a consultant on a number of PBS and History Channel programs, including the Scottsboro Boys, which was nominated for an Academy Award as the best documentary in the year uh, 2000. So it's a great pleasure for us tonight to welcome to the LLC and to LSE Ideas, Professor Carol Birkin, and her lecture tonight is on rewriting the history of the Constitution from the miraculous to the political. Take us down that journey, Carol, and welcome.
can you see me over this? Uh, is it okay? I, I am going to come back in my next life as a seven foot two. Uh, but in this life, my growing spurt has ended. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, delightful to have been invited. Like all nations, my own has a birth myth. And like all birth myths, it's heroic. Mine comes in two parts. First, a war for independence. Next, the creation of a new national government. The independence story, as we learn it in grade school, goes a bit like this. In 1776, all the colonists rose up in unison to rebel against a terrible tyrannical king and the horrible burden of centuries of unfair taxes to wage a war of colonial liberation. During the long war that followed, citizen soldiers shivered in the cold, willingly sharing hardships together. Everyone admired George Washington, and we achieved victory single-handedly against the most powerful army and navy in the world. That is your own. Then they created a democracy, and everyone lived happily ever after. Very little of this story is true, of course, except for the shivering in the cold. Britain's feeble attempts to tax the colonists did not begin until 1765. Americans were deeply divided over the war, and in fact, the majority opposed it or hoped to remain neutral when independence was declared. Farmers notoriously had two flags ready. When the British Army marched by, they rang that one up the flagpole, and when the American Army went by, they put the American flag up. Washington had many critics inside the Army and the Continental Congress, and, of course, it was France's treasury and France's navy that were instrumental in defeating the British at Yorktown. But it's the final part of this independence myth that segues nicely into the creation of the new national government myth. Here we have an equally thrilling tale, often told as miracle in Philadelphia, which, if less violent, is nonetheless as filled with unanimity and heroism as the war itself. In this story, a group of men so brilliant that they could rightly be called, as Thomas Jefferson did call them, demigods, gathered in Philadelphia, confident that they could create a totally original constitution that they were certain would last for ages to come and ensure democracy for all. These men, noble and pure of heart, were motivated by a vision of a powerful, prosperous nation built upon the handiwork. The real story, like all real stories, is far more interesting. And it's this story, warts and all, that I would like to share with you tonight. Let me assure you that I am not one of your run-of-the-mill debunkers. For my research into the lives, characters, and deeds of these men that Americans call the founding fathers or the framers has led me to a greater admiration for them and what they did, precisely because I no longer see them as statues in the park, bronze, a pigeon on their shoulder, and totally inhuman. And so to begin, the men who met in Philadelphia in that hot, humid summer in 1787 were there because they were frightened. Most of them believed that the Republican experiment they called the United States was on the verge of collapse. They may have been wrong. We will never know. But they surely had good reason to believe that they were right. 
The catalog of woes was long and serious. Their country, now only a few years old, was deeply in debt, in debt to France, to Holland, to Spain, to its army officers and its army soldiers, and to its own citizens, and it was completely broke. The existing Constitution, and yes, I always have to remind my students that we had one, the Articles of Confederation, had been born in the midst of a revolution whose slogan, after all, was no taxation without representation. And this, as most 18th century Americans knew, meant no taxation except by the local, colonial, and now state government. Thus, the Confederation had no power to tax and an empty treasury. Localism or provincialism was at the time considered the natural order, and a deep-seated fear of distant governments becoming tyrannical led American political leaders to endow their state or local governments with control over everything from currency to taxation to commerce. It's always important, I think, for my students and for audiences to realize that the 18th century, if you lived in Georgia, Massachusetts may as well have been on the moon. That is, transportation and communication was so poor and so difficult that most people rarely traveled outside their own county, their own parish, or at the very best, their own colony or state. It comes as a surprise always to my students to realize that people who came from South Carolina had no idea who John Adams was, and people who came from Massachusetts had no idea who Thomas Jefferson was. The only two people everyone were likely to know were George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. A government placed in New York City would be as distant and therefore as dangerous to people in Georgia as the government in England that they had just rebelled against. When it was conceived in 1776, the Confederation had seemed ideal exactly because its powers were restricted largely to creating a postal service and managing the territories. But now, in the harsh light of day in 1787, a nation that could not honor its debts, could not regulate commerce among the very competitive states, the colonies had never cooperated with each other, as I'm sure you know. Briefly, during the revolution, they did. And when the revolution was over, they went back to their old ways. On the eve of the convention in Philadelphia, Virginia and Maryland had gunboats aimed at each other across the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, New York was charging an exorbitant fee to Connecticut and New Jersey for any goods imported through New York City. And as a consequence, New Jersey and Connecticut were meeting in secret to plan an attack on New York. Those of us who live in New York City believe that that attack is still on the books. <laughs> they do come in every weekend anyway. Uh, so... The states controlled commerce, each of them, and they set high export and import duties on one another, and they were ready to kill to hold them up. They could not devise an economic policy, that is the Confederation couldn't, without, uh, that would be able to lift the country out of a post-war depression, and they could not protect the nation's ships from piracy or its settlers from Indian attack. The Americans had thought about many things, but in the excitement of the idea of independence, they had not considered the fact that the British Navy protected their merchant marine on the ocean. They learned rather quickly that a country that had no navy 
uh, as their ships went through the Straits of Gibraltar, were available to be pirated. Or I suppose if you lived in Algiers, your textbooks would say entrepreneurs went after these ships. And American ships were taken rather at will. Uh, Letters were then sent to the Confederation Congress saying for a small fee, we'll return your ship and your crew, uh, or for a larger fee, we'll protect your ships from other pirates. The American Confederation Congress could do nothing. Its pockets were empty. Well, in those cir- with those circumstances, was the country likely to remain independent long? The man who led the Continental Army for almost eight years, George Washington, feared that it would not. This government, he wrote, is a mere shadow. And so anxious and fearful that the quarrelsome and competitive states that made up the United States would soon be carved up and distributed among European nations or would soon be at war with one another, men from 12 of those 13 states gathered in Philadelphia. Rhode Island would have none of it. But then few expected the people of what was popularly known as Rogue's Island to attend. Some of the leaders of the revolution also frowned on the gathering. Patrick Henry, who had stirred men to rebellion by, we say, claiming, give me liberty or give me death. I I must tell you, we have no idea what Patrick Henry said. He never wrote down his speeches, and there were no CNN or BBC reporters there to record it. And so, as I rather cynically tell my students, for all we know, he said, give me a ham on cheese. But we have all come to believe that he said, give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry passed harsh judgment on the Philadelphia Convention, sensing that the delegates might go beyond their charge, which was to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. Henry was said to have proclaimed, I smell a rat. On the whole, men who identified themselves first as Virginians, as Marylanders, as New Yorkers, or as Connecticut men, and only secondarily as Americans viewed the convention warily. The convention, in fact, attracted men who, in Alexander Hamilton's very apt phrase, thought continentally. If you look at these men, you'll see that many had been born abroad rather than in the colonies. Many had been educated abroad rather than at home. Many had traveled, had been diplomats, had been army officers in the Continental Army and therefore traveled the length and breadth of the country and therefore were more able to think continentally than their friends and neighbors who had never left their home state. These men were far from certain that they were up to the task of saving the nation. There were some among them who were brilliant. Hamilton, Madison, the irrepressible Ben Franklin, Robert Morris, the financial genius of the revolution, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, and the sophisticated ladies' man with a peg leg, Gouverneur Morris, who in modern times might be called a playboy by his critics and an eligible bachelor by his friends. Almost no one at home seems to know Gouverneur Morris, and it's a shame as he is actually the person who wrote the American Constitution. It was Gouverneur Morris who, when he was handed all the various uh, clauses and uh, segments that had been passed helter-skelter in the course of the four months, 
It was turned over to him, and the delegate said, here, Governor, do something with this. He was the one who created Article One, Article Two, Article Three, and many of us believe that with a judicious rearrangement of commas and semicolons, he managed to turn some of the clauses more favorably toward what he had wanted passed and had not been passed in the convention. It was also Governor Morris who wrote the preamble. When it was turned over to Governor Morris, it said, we the delegates of New Hampshire, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Governor Morris, who would have been a Madison Avenue advertising expert in modern times, said, we can't do this. We're trying to sell this to the people. This is paraphrasing. We really need to say up front why this is so much better than the former government. Uh, I've written a little preamble, and I hope you like it. And this is what is inscribed on buildings in America with great seriousness as if the entire convention came up with the words. It was Governor Morris instead. Most of the men there were shocked. New Englanders were shocked by Governor Morris. He was known to, as I said, be a ladies' man, and the ladies he preferred were usually other men's wives. He thought that women who were married were less trouble. He also, I believe, was the first feminist in America because he once said that he could not make love to a woman who was not intelligent. Uh, He had a peg leg. He had lost his leg uh, in a carriage accident when he was 13, a very ordinary and sad event. He was caught up in the reins of the carriage and pulled along, and they amputated his leg. The rumors spread at the convention, however, that Gouverneur Morris had lost his leg leaping out of the boudoir window of his best friend's wife when he, his friend had unexpectedly returned. It will tell you a lot about Gouverneur Morris that he loved that story, and he never denied it. The New Englanders were very funny. They would write about him, Gouverneur Morris, comma, despite his low morals, comma, said something very interesting today. Uh, These men might be considered brilliant, but most were men of quite ordinary abilities, men who in our own time would not have won early admission to Harvard or been insured places at Oxbridge. Their apparent superior intelligence was not inborn, but it was bred. As wealthy men, they had a near monopoly on formal education, on college, and on law schools. They could afford to travel and to create libraries. They could study at the University of Edinburgh or read law in London's Inns of Court. Then, as today, knowledge was power and formal knowledge was not widely available. They stood above the average man because of their monopoly on knowledge and because of their political experience as well. They were the sons and grandsons and great-grandsons of elite planters, merchants, shippers, and lawyers who took it as their civic obligation and their social right to serve in the government. So they had learned politics at the dinner table. They had entered colonial legislatures in their early 20s. We have only to remember that Edmund Randolph, who presented the Virginia plan, was 25, and he had already been governor of Virginia, the most powerful and richest and most populous state in the Union. They had been governors and judges and diplomats. In short, they knew everything from parliamentary procedure, how to caucus for votes, to the history of British political development, to the laws of England and the theories of John Locke. They would have been amused to be viewed as demigods, and I have to make my anti-Jefferson statement. 
Jefferson called them demigods, but when the Constitution first appeared, he was furiously opposed to it. He wrote a 20-page critique condemning the Constitution and sent copies of it home to everyone he knew. In fact, he sent so many copies home to Virginia that James Madison finally had to write him a letter and say, could you stop? You're about to ensure that the Constitution will not be ratified in Virginia. After Jefferson became president, then he decided the Constitution was really quite all right, and this is when he declared that they were demigods. Uh, They were not. Among them were drunkards, and it's very important that Luther Martin of Maryland was an alcoholic. He was uh, many sheets to the wind by 10 o'clock in the morning when they convened every day. And at a very critical moment in the debates, when the small states and the large states were arguing about representation, Luther Martin stood up in the convention absolutely plastered and gave a four-hour completely incoherent speech and diminished the power of the small state argument for the day. There was a snuff addict, Oliver Ellsworth, who I don't know if you get the cartoon Peanuts over here, but in Peanuts there's always a character called Pigpen who's surrounded by dirt. Oliver Ellsworth was always surrounded by snuff dust, and it was a well-known fact that if you wanted to see whether he agreed with you or not, you had to blow the the dust away before you could see his face. There were several men whose wild speculation in land would soon land them in jail or see them fleeing from law offices to avoid their debts. There was a sprinkling of vain and pompous men that in the 18th century would be called fops, far more concerned with the gold buttons on their frock coats or their alleged noble ancestry than was seemly. There were obese men, there were stutterers and exaggerators, adulterers, seducers of other men's wives. In short, their place was among humanity, not with the gods. They would have been even more amused by most Americans' firm belief that they knew exactly what to do and that they were confident that they had gotten it right when they had done it. These men were certainly confident of their right to lead, but they were not consumed by hubris. They did not think they could read the future and they had no idea what the future would hold. Their vision was clouded, and they chose to deal with an immediate crisis, not to scan the horizon to see what the centuries would bring. The congenitally optimistic Ben Franklin, who if he had been alive in the 20th century, would have invented that obnoxious smiley face, said that if the Constitution they created lasted 10 years, they would have done their duty. They had not, as I tell my own students, read ahead in the textbook, and thus they did not know that the document they wrote would endure and that the nation they saved would become among the greatest powers of modern times. If you read the record of the convention debates, and you can read them comfortably in your own home at your computer, for James Madison's illegal but thorough notes, as well as the official notes of the convention taken by its secretary, are now online. You can go to yale.edu to the Avalon Project and read them as I did in your home. If you do, you'll immediately grasp the tone of seriousness with which these men engaged their task. There was almost no soaring rhetoric. 
There were no long discourses on liberty or the social contract theory of government. There were few learned references to the Roman Republic or to those 17th century political writers honored as the Commonwealth men. The convention had the tone of a long working session, driven by urgency, a fear of failure, and above all, by a willingness to compromise. They were not, thank heavens, determined to create anything radical or new. The myth suggests that the framers of the Constitution created out of whole cloth all the principles that we in America, well, that we once revered. <laughs> Some of us still do. Separation of powers, checks and balances, a clear explanation of the powers of the government and those reserved to the citizens. Absolutely none of this is true. The English revolutions of the 1640s and 1688 had established checks and balances among the branches of the government. The English government, the colonial governments, and the state governments were built on separations of power among an executive, a legislature, and a judiciary. Each state had produced written constitutions, and most of them had stated clearly what the unalienable rights of the citizens were and what explicit powers the government had been granted by those citizens. Consider for a moment the consequences if after four months of secret meetings, these men had foisted upon excuse me, upon the nation a framework of government that was totally innovative, totally new and radical, unfamiliar in its principles, and unrecognizable in its design to the average voting citizen. It would have been rejected outright, and they might well have been condemned as traitors to the revolution. Instead, they wisely drew upon the Anglo-American political culture in which they and their neighbors had been reared. They borrowed from their past and from their immediate present relying on their experiences as political leaders at every turn. They very early on decided to abandon the articles and design a new government, and that government was to have the powers necessary to ensure what 18th century men called energetic or vigorous government. That is, the power to tax, the power to regulate commerce, both foreign and domestic, and the power to create a uniform currency. They would propose to the American voters a truly national government whose powers were siphoned to a great degree from the states, and that was radical enough. Their genius was to realize that a national government that reflected rather than challenged political traditions would be more palliative than one that flew in the face of the existing political culture. It is ironic, I think, that the single innovation of the Constitution was and remains its most problematic element, and that was federalism. It had long been a truism that sovereignty or power was indivisible. When the Continental Congress had proposed in a last-ditch effort to avoid the revolution that there should be two parliaments, one to govern England and one to govern the colonies, united by their loyalties to the king, the English government had rejected the proposal as preposterous. Sovereignty was not sovereignty if it was divided. Yet at the Constitutional Convention, every delegate realized that the states were, in fact, the sovereign governments. 
and that their legitimacy was unchallenged. For the national government to acquire its powers, these must in part be drained from the states or shared with the states. Power then was to be diffused not only within the national government, but between the national government and the state's governments. The notion was radical, but it was born out of necessity, not out of a love of novelty. When Alexander Hamilton considered this notion of divided sovereignty, he decided it was doomed to failure. In one of the few speeches he gave at the convention, the ever-practical, though often quite out-of-touch New Yorker, stood up and said, this will never work. The only thing we can do is abolish the states. I can picture the delegate saying, sit down, Alex, take your medicine. We can imagine stunned delegates, each representing his own state, after all. Yet the often prescient Hamilton, the only true visionary of the convention, Hamilton, in a country that was 94% agricultural, envisioned a nation that could, within a decade, vie with Great Britain for manufacturing and commerce. Hamilton was, in many ways, correct. The conflict between states' rights and the national government's authority has, after all, been one of the major engines of American history, from the Kentucky and Virginia Resolves to the Hartford Convention, the North, if you recall, where the first, New England was the first to threaten secession, not the South, to the Civil War, to the sight of a governor standing in a schoolhouse door resisting the Supreme Court's ruling on integration, Federalism has been a major problem. For four long months, these men debated, decided, reconsidered, redesigned that frame of government. They sent thorny problems to committees, my favorite committee being the Committee on Postponed Matters. They bargained with each other privately. They brokered deals among rival states that often led to compromise solutions. My students all think that the 18th century was quite quaint, and they didn't know how to do the kinds of things politicians do today. They would be greatly surprised if they found out that they all knew and knew far better than some know today. They avoided subjects that might destroy the fragile unity of the enterprise, chief among them, of course, the role of slavery in a republic. They allowed for the possibility that the document they produced might have flaws, and thus they included the right of future generations to amend it as they saw fit. Their greatest concern in the end was not really the form of representation in the Senate or the House, which all American textbooks say is the key to the convention, the great compromise, or even how the president was to be elected, which they considered more of an aggravating problem than a serious issue. Instead, it was this. How could they give power yet restrain it so that tyranny would not result? These men were pessimists about what we today would call human nature. They believed that all men, good ones as well as bad ones, were susceptible to the siren call of power. Given a little, every man would conspire to gain a lot. They believed this and they worked to guard against it even though, or perhaps because, they knew that they would be the men in power in the new government. They feared themselves. Would that modern political leaders did the same. 
Reading the debates, you can clearly see the anxiety and tension as they empowered the executive and then built constitutional fences around his use of his power with the rules of impeachment. How they granted the legislature its primary position and indeed their intent was that the legislature was the heart and soul of the government, Article One, after all, the central and primary identifying mark of a republic, not the presidency or the executive. And then they labored to create an equilibrium between the two houses and a check upon the legislature through the veto power of the executive. Why did they do this? History had taught them that republics were short-lived and tyranny was always their executioner. That tyranny could take various shapes. Tyranny of the one, a Caesar or a King George III. Tyranny of the few, an oligarchy. And most feared of all, tyranny of the many or democracy, which they knew as mob rule. The founders were not advocates of democracy, I assure you. The world they occupied was not egalitarian in credo or in practice. It was hierarchical, its inequality sustained by deference, by law, by custom, or by brute force. And those inequalities were in their minds natural and appropriate. They believed, as did their 18th century Anglo-American peers, that full citizenship was a privilege, not a birthright. It belonged only to free white men who owned property or, in their minds, had a stake in society. Politics was, metaphorically speaking, a huge poker game in which one could not play a hand unless one could ante up. A man had to have something to lose, something at risk, if he was to join in creating laws or choosing those who created them. Otherwise, he would support rash proposals and put at risk his neighbor's unalienable right to enjoy his own property. The framers or founders had risked their lives and fortunes to create a republic, a representative government, not a democracy. And I would argue that the second great engine of American history has been the quest for participation in that republic, the push for inclusion of all as full citizens, the poor and propertyless, women, the enslaved, the free African-American, immigrants, and Native Americans, the redefinition of citizenship as a right rather than a privilege. That trajectory, however, is a phenomenon of the, 18th, of the 19th and 20th centuries, not the 18th. If the Constitution the framers created could make room for democracy, it was not designed originally to accommodate it. And so I think I've offered you a very different story from the one that is often told. Mine is indeed a tale of patriotic men, but privileged men, Men of average intellect, but extensive experience as political leaders. It's a tale of men with all too human foibles and vices. It's a tale of anxious men, uncertain whether they could save their nation, and if they could, for how long. Their accomplishments were based on compromise. As Hamilton said at the end of the convention, no man got everything he wanted. No man got nothing he wanted and every man got something he wanted. 
and their blueprint was thoroughly embedded in a centuries-old Anglo-American political culture, its only innovation, federalism, the result of necessity. They were men who were terrified of and drawn to power. They did not trust each other or themselves with that power, yet they knew it was the necessary evil that made government possible. Does this make them heroes? I would say yes. They're not superheroes in the comic book mode, able to stop speeding bullets barehanded or capture enemies with their magic lassos. Superheroes may deserve our applause, but not our praise. After all, when Superman stops a speeding train, so what? He's Superman. But if an ordinary person does that same thing, that's an accomplishment. This group of 54 ordinary men did something remarkable, and they did it through cooperation, constant compromise, and plain old hard work, not through force or through overpowering rhetoric. Follow them as they trudge through the rain and the heat each morning into Independence Hall, far from their families, their farms and plantations, their law practices or their shipyards. As they settle down to the business at hand without hope of delivering sound bites to waiting newspaper reporters at the end of the day, and certainly without hope of scoring points back home with their constituents, because after all, they were about to take power away from the very people they represented. <clears throat> they are proof that ordinary people can do extraordinary things if they wish to. And this puts the burden, I think, on us as modern citizens and on those we elect, not to throw our hands up in despair or claim that things are too complicated or too difficult or play the game of politics as if it were winner-take-all. Hamilton, Madison, Washington, Wilson, Morris, Sherman, Patterson, Pickney, they may not be demigods, but they are men worth emulating more than ever today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carol. That was a wonderful and exciting lecture. It's a privilege to listen to you tonight. I want to start up with a question, and others will join in, I'm sure, but I wanted to ask you to explore a bit more the intellectual background in terms of the thinking of these people who assembled in Philadelphia 220 years ago. Because as you said, I mean, very clearly, much of the tradition that they stood in came out of 17th and early 18th century England. Were there other elements at work? I mean, what you sometimes see reflected in terms of how the debate went was maybe not in the terms of the, in terms of the content, as you, I think, rightly pointed out, but in terms of the form, the classical ideals. I mean, the, the, the concept of a republic not just coming through uh, what had developed in England in the, in the 17th century, but also, as they would put it themselves, going back to the source of republicanism. How important do you think that is? Is that rhetoric, or is it something that actually came to inspire at least some of the people who were there uh, in its own right? This is one of the great not-down-drag-out debates among American historians. We have no life. This is the kind of thing we discuss. Uh, there were many Americans, 
many of whom opposing the Constitution, interestingly enough, men like Samuel Adams and Patrick Henry, who would not go to the convention, who believed uh, that a republic survived based on simplicity, virtue, willingness to sacrifice one's sacred honor and one's property for the good of the country. That is the model of the Roman, if you remember Washington's uh, officer society that he formed, was called the Society of the Cincinnati. I mean, there, there is a kind of hearkening back to perhaps a mythical, but in their mind a very real uh, republic of virtue. This passes or rather it exists simultaneously, I think would be the best way to describe it, with a very different notion of liberal capitalism that is going to eventually, actually quite soon in the 19th century, uh, come to suggest that if every man pursues his own self-interest, it will in some magical way be good for, for uh, the country as a whole. Uh, both ideas, by the way, continue throughout, certainly throughout 19th century history. If you read populist literature, the American populist movement, the farmers' movement, much of their literature reads just like the old notion of republican virtue. And so these ideas don't die out, and they often exist simultaneously, and sometimes they exist in the same person simultaneously. That is, there are people who are who do not see as clearly the implications that these two things are uh, oppose each other. And, but I would argue that the men at the convention, when they talked at all about um, the Roman Republic, their greatest concern was why did it decline into tyranny. Mm-hmm. And the solutions they proposed were much less the solution of honor and virtue Uh, This was not something they thought they could put into the Constitution. What they could put into the Constitution were checks and balances. That is, what they could put in were – they were all, by the way, of course, most of them were lawyers. And you can almost see them looking for where the loopholes are and how do we plug up the loopholes as we write this Constitution. And what's in their mind when they think immediately in that convention about the Roman Republic or the Greek city-states, is what did they not remember to do that prevented tyranny? Uh, So I think that these ideas, I think you're more likely to have found men who were not at the convention still adhering to a notion of the virtue of the people much more than these political leaders. Thanks. Pius Ludlow. How important was uh, for the success of the Philadelphia Convention the fact that, as you stressed in your introduction, the problems of communications and the, the poor transport links and everything else meant that those who devised the Constitution were presumably working in some isolation from their um, individual state constituencies? Yes, they met in secret, and there are always these great discussions. The men themselves said, oh, we met in secret because we didn't want the rest of the world to know how bad things were. Well, that's nonsense because everyone did know. The French minister who was in Philadelphia at the time is writing home in May when the convention begins saying, what part of the United States would you like when it falls apart? So it's not as if no one knew. 
then they say, well, we met in secret so that we could air our differences openly. The real reason they meet in secret, I, I, I hope you understand I admire them for this. They're great politicians, and their own political careers, if the Constitution is not ratified, is in their state governments. Mm. I mean, if this doesn't work, the Confederation government is not where they want to spend the rest of their life. And in fact, for an entire year before the convention meets, there's no quorum in New York at the Confederation Congress. I mean, people just aren't going because they can't do anything. So these men are based in their state governments, and they meet in secret because they know they are going to horse trade, and they know they are going to go against the instructions that their state legislature has given them. And they don't want anybody to hear it on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, they're so clever that every day they adjourn to the committee of the whole. Now, when I first read this, not having much political experience, I thought, what is this committee of the whole? What does it mean? Well, they adjourn to the Committee of the Whole. That is, the entire convention becomes a committee mm -hmm. because you don't have to formally record what goes on in a committee meeting or the votes taken in the committee. So they hash out all these things. They mm -hmm. trade votes. And then when they finally come up with a solution, they reconvene as the convention. They call the question and the states vote. And nobody really has a formal record of what went on. So I think that the advantage they had in meeting in secret was they got to do what they knew was essential to do, which was compromise. Mm -hmm. the, the second great advantage they had was when it came time for ratification. There were states in which the ratification question was called the convention before anybody had even received a copy of the Constitution. And it was the men who were at the convention who knew what was in the Constitution and who had heard all the arguments for and against certain things. Why, why is the president serving a four-year term? Well, they had debated this ad nauseum. And if you look at the Federalist Papers, which modern-day political scientists and historians look at almost like the Bible, you really have to think of them as talking points. These were written so that Federalists in every convention, and this is not to say they aren't a brilliant piece of political science, but they were written for the very practical purpose that Federalists in every convention, if, if an issue were raised, could turn to Federalist 58 and have the answer to the question. And so they had an enormous advantage in being organized, in being knowledgeable, that the poor anti-Federalists many of whom came to the convention and had not seen the Constitution yet, uh, had a great disadvantage. I'll give you one other rather funny example of distance and communication being an advantage. In Massachusetts, the backcountry counties, the, the Berkshires, what today are hardly the rural area, but were then sent poorer men as delegates. And they came to Boston at great expense. And when the convention, uh, ratifying convention vote didn't seem to be going in favor of the Constitution, the Federalists spread a rumor to these backcountry farmers that if the Constitution was not ratified, their expenses for traveling to and from their home county would not be reimbursed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Federalists are very astute politicians, and they, they, they're willing to submit the Constitution to ratification, which is why it's not a coup d'etat. They're willing to say, here's what we've done. Do you approve it or not? But they're also willing to use every trick in the book to make sure that the conventions ratify it. Tom Packer? Use the mic. I'd like to say I also really like the talk and found it really good. Um, um, I was wondering in what context, um, uh, on the democratic aspect, one thing that struck me about the, re- about the revolutionary period is that because of changes in property franchise and, in cha- and changes in the rev- um, and massive inflation, um, in a very large number of states, an enormous percentage, often a large majority, of free men or white men in some states have the vote. Um, so that though they dislike democracy and there's wide agreement on the dislike of the word democracy, what most people understand as democracy today, namely an elected representative government elected on some kind of broad franchise, um, actually in many ways exists quite strongly in these states. Secondly, of course, and you sort of indicated this, to, so one, I was going to wonder about that. To what degree is democracy being seen as an sort of instant referenda, um, people gathering together in meetings like this, like Athens, rather than fitting in with the understanding of people today who believe in democracy. And secondly, in terms of the convention, of, of course, as you were saying towards the end, it's creating a constitution where these often quite democratic quotes, elected state legislatures will have a lot more power and people will be electing people who will be electing people to form the Senate and the Electoral mm-hmm. College. Um, so to what degree is what's motivating this not to what degree is it about the practical problems and to what degree is it the belief that this has been a disaster, we've given far too much power to all these directly elected and we need to set up a system where people like us can run the country without too much intervention well that's certainly what Charles Beard wanted to tell us Uh, I don't think they they were worried about what we would call law and order they were terribly worried about farmers rising up after all the revolution had been the rhetoric of the revolution had been, if a government does not act in your best interests, it's an illegitimate government. And the farmers, for instance, in the back counties of Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and what would become West Virginia had risen up uh, because they couldn't pay their debts, they couldn't pay their mortgages, and they said, this government isn't serving our best interests, we have a right Actually, they never proposed, Chase Rebels never proposed overthrowing the government. They just wanted the courts not to issue the writs of it, right? And they worried about that. They worried about the idea that they wanted the revolution over. That's what they wanted. They wanted the revolution done. And Samuel Adams, who is probably the most radical political leader, wants Chase Rebels hanged. He says there's absolutely, they have absolutely no right to raise up and challenge the government because it's a representative government. It's not a tyrannical government. You have no right. This is treason. The revolution about, against King George is over, and, and these men deserve to be hanged. And so there's no question that, that the leaders of the country wanted revolutionary ideas finished. They wanted it to stop. But I don't think that they feared uh, ordinary people getting into government in the way. There were some states that Countryman has shown us that in New York there was a kind of pitched battle about whether these men would get into government or not. But in most cases, deference held pretty securely. 
your slaves might rise up and rebel. That's the law and order piece of it. Uh, farmers might rise up with pitchforks and, and challenge the courts. But I don't think they worried that the ordinary farmer who might own enough land to vote would ever dare challenge the right of men of higher social status to run the government. And you don't see them doing this until, mythically, again, the age of Jackson, when, you know, the common man is supposed to take over, when, in fact, they're organized in political parties and their loyalty is what's needed, not their voice in government. I don't mean to be cynical, but... So I don't think that they're concerned about a kind of takeover of the government, either on the state level, really, or on the national government level, though they did. There's no question they worried that some legislatures, Rhode Island, for instance, had just gone to hell in a handbasket as far as they were concerned. Every man could vote, and they were printing paper money, and that was an example of democracy run wild. But I think when you think about the fact that still, when the Constitution was written, your ranking at Yale, Harvard, Columbia, or the College of New Jersey was based on your social status, not your grade point average. When you still walked into the Anglican church that George Washington occasionally attended, based on your social position, everybody didn't meet God equally. You walked in based upon your social standing in the community, and Reese Isaacs and others have suggested one of the reasons these men went to church at all was simply to reaffirm their social standing in the community. When you see that kind of deference still active, I think it's unlikely that their concern was we have to keep government out of their hands. I think their concern was we have to have some means to tell people that what they are doing is illegal and we will send the army after them. That's exactly what in the Whiskey Rebellion they do. The, the military troops that were sent to Pennsylvania to put down this rebellion of, of men making whiskey, 13,000 soldiers, that's more than Washington ever commanded in the American Revolution. That's what bothered them, not the takeover of the government, at least as, as I read it. I, I think everybody loves Beard when they first read him. It's such a wonderful image of conspiracy and power. But, and I certainly did when I first studied this believe he was correct. But when you read their writings, when you read their letters, when you read what they say in the conventions, you, you don't get that sense anymore. Yes. Oh, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think today we think of democracy as uh, sort of exercising your right to vote, to elect. And that's what the 19th century the fight for the vote was certainly the fight for it to be a birthright, not a privilege, certainly motivated them. For them, they really did think of democracy as the mob. Uh, I don't, I'm not so sure there aren't political leaders today who don't still think of it that way, uh, I, I, I would add. Juan Paul Rubius. Thanks. Uh, I wonder whether I can ask you to develop the question uh, that earlier Arnie made himself about the non-Anglo-American models that, um, that they had as people who had read classical history and were aware of other examples. And I, uh, in two respects in particular, um, 
You have mentioned the challenging idea that sovereignty couldn't be divided as a particularly difficult point. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, however, a kind of classical model for doing that, which was the idea of a mixed constitution, the idea that you shared power by mixing elements from democracy, aristocracy, and, 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 um, and monarchy, which is, of course, the way Polybius interprets the, the, the Roman constitution, the, the fact that it, it, it is a check against uh, the possibility of tyranny by mm -hmm. giving power to the aristocracy and the check against oligarchy by being popular yes. people and so on. I wonder whether that was relevant at all to the debates. That was the first question. Well, they, they would call that checks and balances. I mean, that would be part of, they certainly understood that the legislature would be elected differently from the Senate, that the president would be elected differently, that they didn't represent, as they still did, say in England, a caste system. We didn't have an official uh, by birth aristocracy or by birth royalty, We did, although there were certainly people who... Let, one of the reasons there was such opposition to the order of the Cincinnati was the fear that Washington and, and other army officers were going to create a noble caste by this being a hereditary organization. Uh, poor Washington is so stunned by this because, in fact, what he's really trying to create is this alumni, the guys who fought together, the men who suffered on the front. He wants them to stay together. He wants them to reune and remember old, you know, war stories. And he wants to make sure that the widows of these men and the children of these men are taken care of. It's a kind of charitable organization. And he's just just really taken aback when people accuse him of trying to build a, a, a hereditary aristocracy. Uh, so there were concerns about that. But in fact, America didn't have that kind of caste system. And so the different ways in which the branches of government were elected and the different terms that they served uh, was the closest you would come to this. That's not what they meant by dividing sovereignty. They meant that there were state governments that had certain powers and rights that the national government couldn't touch. For instance, there's not a word in the American Constitution about who's, who's eligible to vote. Not a word. That's a state's decision, who gets to vote, what the property requir requirements will be. So that there are certain absolute rights that the state governments had that the national government would have. When the national government creates a uniform currency, that means that every state currency is illegal. And so that's what they're talking about when they're talking about divided sovereignty. And if you know American history, I mean, after all, what is the Civil War about? I, I don't know if any of you here, I have a slight southern accent still. I've been in New York for 40 years, but I was born in Alabama. My folks are from New York, so we weren't involved in the Civil War. But the South had the constitutional argument. They were absolutely right. The states existed before the nation. The states gave power to the national government. And these states, 13 of them, decided to take it back. And this was what they're talking about when they talk about divided sovereignty, was this absolute power. So that, that actually leads nicely to the second part of my question, which was there had been a, a case in, in Europe in the 17th century of 
of, of, of a very similar kind of you problem. You speak into the mic. Sorry, yeah. Uh, in the 17th century in Europe, there had been a very similar kind of issue when the Netherlands had mm -hmm. created uh, a, uh, a government out of, se of, of seven provinces, all of which were sovereign. Mm -hmm. Was that at all relevant in the discussions or totally ignored? You know, in the ratifying conventions, I, I think, as I recall, and I can't recall all of them, but I think Patrick Henry raises the Netherlands. Uh, Patrick Henry raised virtually everything he could uh, and talked endlessly, by the way, in, in the convention. But I don't – I, I tried to convey to you my read of these men. They're very untheoretical in the convention. They're very un, um, not, not rhetorical. They believe all those references are over and done with in the revolution. I mean, they, the, un, the unanimity they have about what it is they're trying to do, that is, create a national government with certain powers. The understanding that they have that there are certain things that have to be there. The people have certain rights. The government has certain rights. It has to be written down. There have to be division of power. All of those things were so, so – I want to use the word natural, though historians never use that word so, – so inbred in them as, as American politicians. They draw so much. For instance, almost all of them arrived, or many of them arrived, with John Adams' thoughts on government in their hand, which was his great treatise on why we needed a stronger national government and what the checks and balances should be. That became much more their model than Madison's Virginia plan. And the Virginia plan was immediately accepted and debated in large part because it was so familiar to everyone there. It was so much what they understood they were doing. And so the issues that they dealt with were so much less um, grand than the intellectual questions that I think you're asking. American politics sometimes has been seen as a great deal more practical than other politics. This is really a moment when that seems to be true. Sounds good. First of all, congratulations. I think this has been the – I've heard all the public lectures in this series. I think this has been the best. Thank you. And uh, just one question. Um, you mentioned slavery uh, in passing. Uh, a great deal of the most recent historiography on the convention has dealt with um, slavery. Indeed, Gordon Woods has complained recently it's gone too far. Uh, how do you see it as part of the overall picture? Do you think it has gone too far, or uh, do you think this is a, a good and healthy development that people are looking at the, the relationship between the, the origins and the future slave power? I think one thing that has happened in American historiography in the last, say, 15 years you said slavery, everybody thought about the 19th century. And then we began to get um, quantitative history done on the famous St. Mary's Commission project in Maryland where they began to do uh, sort of um, collective profiles. And they began to study the difference between slavery in, in the rice plantation areas and slavery in the tobacco areas and the differences in the work patterns and the organization and the demography of the slaves. So that slavery has become, in the last 20 years in American history, a, 
a much more studied subject for the colonial period than, than it had ever been before. Uh, this leads then, I think, to a greater question about what did these men who come out of these cultures think about slavery when they write the Constitution. And since the rhetoric of the American Revolution was often the king is trying to enslave us, there is a kind of now, a, 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 these historians who study colonial slavery have now followed this through into the constitutional debates. Here is what I would say. What is most interesting to me about the issue of slavery is that two, two principles are at odds and they could not untangle them. The first was the absolute belief in the sanctity of property. That is, it was really life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. And this was really a critical issue. As long as human beings were defined as property, I would say most of the political leaders in America were paralyzed by the concern about the infringement on the rights of property. The second principle that was... Well, historians debate about this, so you can take my version or you can take anybody else's version. The sort of emerging but still amorphous idea of what they meant by equality, human equality. In the 19th century, it becomes so much clearer because Lincoln, uh, the De Declaration of Independence, after it's written and war is declared, is just completely ignored by everyone. Nobody reads it anymore. Nobody pays any attention. It's a Declaration of Independence. It's the abolitionists and Lincoln who lift it back up into importance, and Lincoln makes it the credo of America, you know, equality of all people. And so by the 19th century, you have almost a fully developed conflict between the sanctity of property and the equality of human beings. And that debate, that conflict is not resolved by argument or debate. It's resolved by force of arms. And people are no longer allowed to be property, and the issue vanishes. For the men in the convention, the, the power of the argument of equality is underdeveloped. And the power of the argument of the sanctity of property is, is powerful for them. So I think even men who believed, like Benjamin Franklin, who's suddenly going to have a conversion experience and join the year before he dies, he joins the Pennsylvania uh, Anti-Slavery Society, even those who believe slavery was immoral or unchristian or didn't fit in a republic, could not find the way to challenge the sanctity of property. They also knew if they raised it, the southern states would vanish. It, they, it was made quite clear. And if you think about what happened in the American Revolution, you understand why. Two major British campaigns in the south, two major campaigns. Georgia had no more, one, one Georgia planter says there are not more than 500 slaves left in Georgia. South Carolina had lost most of its slaves. To restore the economy in their mind required slaves. So they wanted not only slavery to be sacred, they wanted the extension of the slave trade without any import tax. And so when you have major states, and the South was the richer portion of the country, when you have these major states 
slavery is not the issue. Whether you're going to have an import tax on bringing slaves in is the issue. It would be foolhardy in the extreme to have had an extended debate about whether there should be slavery in America or not. George Mason, who is a Virginian and a slave owner, refuses to sign the Constitution at the end of the convention because they refuse to debate slavery. And yet, he does not free his slaves. So this is a subject of great conflict for many of them, but they wanted to keep it out of the convention. And every time it's raised, it's squelched. And when people say they're talking about it, they're actually talking about the slave trade. Slavery is raised for two issues, the slave trade, and there the issue isn't should we have it, but should there be an import tax. And the second issue is representation. Are you going to count slaves in representation? And they'd already resolved this in the Articles of Confederation government. The three-fifths compromise was well known to them from the Confederation. And that's the only time they really talk about slavery. I'll do one last round of questions. Yes, please, back down. The, the right I'm sorry, my answers are always longer than anyone wants. <laughs> please. Um, I, I basically, I had a question since you did a lot of discussing on the, um, on the Constitution and uh, the mythical um, stories that surround the Founding Fathers. I was um, curious as to um, your belief on the thoughts. Um, I heard from another political scientist uh, who teaches at Michigan State, uh, Dr. Allen, um, he suggested an idea that the Constitution um, has not, uh, has yet to live up to its entire intention. Do you believe that it, that actually plays into your idea of this uh, mythology and do, would you subscribe to that statement? Thank you. Well, I believe two, two things. I believe that the men who wrote the Constitution would be hysterical with laughter at the idea of original intent. Part of the reason I wrote A Brilliant Solution was to write an anti-original intent book. They did not believe that future generations, that the world would look the same. They didn't know how it would look, but they didn't believe it would look the same. And that's why they added the amendment process. And Hamilton, again, is the person with the great line. He says, we cannot hold the future in the icy grip of the past. And so... I never waste a lot of time running back to find out what the founding fathers thought about something because that what they thought was amend it to fit your current moment in time. And I have to tell you one little anecdote about this. Uh, Jim Horton, who is a wonderful historian of slavery, uh, was giving a talk about uh, Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, African-American abolitionist, and he was giving it in Boston in the midst of this great controversy of a busing African-American children from one school to another. And he's talking about this 19th century man, right? And someone puts his hand up and says, what would Frederick Douglass say about busing? And without missing a beat, Jim Horton says, well, the first thing he'd say is, what's a bus? <laughs> and, and this is how I feel uh, about the men who wrote the Constitution, they don't have a solution to the ozone layer disappearing. They don't have a solution to stem cell. Uh, and so, uh, by way of long answer, 
I think a lot of people who say that the Constitution hasn't lived up to its promise are people who think that it's a Rosetta Stone, you know, that it holds the answer to everything. I clearly don't think that. I think the other side of it is much uh, truer in our current political situation in the United States, is that the Bill of Rights is in danger of being wiped away. And I think that there are many Americans, I hope there are many Americans, more Americans who believe that this is a problem than not, that, that the, the, the rights guaranteed in the Bill of Rights seem to be being eroded. And, and that, I feel pretty certain, would disturb the framers of the Constitution. But changing the Constitution, they'd be all for it. The next lecture in the Cold War Studies Center Ideas series, um, a bit following on from what Carol just said, is on the 5th of December, when Robert Kagan, uh, a man used to be known as a neoconservative, will lecture on the topic, America, dangerous nation. And <laughs> yes, there is a quotation, there is a, there is a question mark at the, at the end of this. I want to thank the um, Gilliland Institute of New York who sponsors and makes possible this fantastic lecture series that we've had now going for almost two years. Uh, but first and foremost, of course, I want to thank Carol Birkin for an inspired and inspiring lecture tonight. Thank you thank very you. much. Carol. Thank you.